Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I don't think we've done a very good job equipping people with how to deal with negative emotions. I think at some level, we've sold them a bill of goods about the need to be positive all the time. And what we should be doing is saying, yeah, have lots of positive emotions. They make life fantastic, but you're going to have some negative emotions. And these negative emotions are adaptive. They're functional if you know how to treat them. That's best-selling author Dan Pink, who believes that negative emotions can be a force for good in our lives. Dan is most interested in the emotion of regret, which is the focus of his book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. But it took Dan a while to figure out why regret was such a valuable emotion. You know, reading through all these regrets every day here in my office, why was I not more bummed out? I got these people opening up their hearts and, and telling me the mistakes that they made and how terrible they feel about it. Why did that not bring me down? And, and I finally, over time, realized that when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. On today's episode, how to transform our relationship with regret to live happier and more fulfilling lives. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. So I guess I'll start, Dan, by talking about how much I loved this very visceral description of regret that you share in your book. You call it the stomach-churning feeling that the present would be better and the future brighter if only you hadn't chosen so poorly, decided so wrongly, or acted so stupidly in the past. Of all the feelings to study, why did you choose this one to examine in particular? 
because uh, my stomach was churning (laughs) because I had that emotion and I wasn't sure what to do about it. And at some level, I was at a point in my life where to my surprise, I had mileage on me. I had a room to look back. And like many people who look backward, I look backward and I see, if only I had been kinder, if only I had taken more risks, if only I had worked harder, if only I had done that rather than that. And my stomach was churning in a way that made me want to talk about it. And when I very tenderly began mentioning it to other people, I discovered that everybody wanted to talk about regret and that our perception of this emotion and what it meant to people was very different from how it lived in people's hearts and heads. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think you you probably identified there was something counterintuitive we might discover (laughs) if you were to go down that path. Before we analyze how regret affects our lives, I first want to recognize just how remarkable it is that we as humans are even capable of feeling this thing called regret. I mean, as a cognitive scientist, I'm always marveling at human abilities, but this one in particular kind of knocks your socks off. Um, You say that our ability to feel regret depends on at least two pretty complex mental abilities. Do you mind painting a picture of, of what those are? Sure. The two mental abilities are time travel and storytelling. So time travel is essential in our ability to experience regret, if you think about this. So suppose that somebody has a regret about marrying Steve rather than Bob. Mm. I married Steve and I should have married Bob if only I'd married Bob. All right. So think about that. So what are you doing? You're getting into a time machine and you're traveling back in time to when you first got to know Steve and Bob. Now, that itself is pretty amazing that we can travel through time in our heads. That's amazing in itself. But wait, there's more. Because what we do is we go back and imagine what happened, but then rewrite the story, essentially negate what really happened, overwrite it with our own tale. Hey, I'm going to marry Bob. That's amazing too. But wait, there's more. Because then we get back in our time machine and come back to the present. And suddenly the present looks entirely different because we've reconfigured the past. Mm. And so that's an incredible cognitive ability, this ability of counterfactual thinking. Counterfactual thinking is when we imagine a situation that runs counter to the actual facts. So counterfactual thinking can be, it rained yesterday, if only it were sunny yesterday. That's counterfactual thinking. How would my life be different if it was sunny yesterday? Uh, It's one reason why, I mean, as a cognitive scientist, you know that little kids can't do this. Their brains are not fully developed enough to do this kind of processing. So I'd love to dig into the fact that kids can't do this because it is fascinating from a child development perspective. Absolutely. So so this is um, an experiment done by a couple of, of developmental psychologists. And what they did is they told kids a story about two boys. One was named Bob and one was named David. Now, these boys live near each other. And each day, Bob and David would each ride their bikes to school and they would take a path that went around a pond. Now, you can go around the right side of the pond to get to school, or you can go around the left side of the pond to get to school. And both paths are equidistant. It's the same length, the same amount of time. But every day, Bob goes around the right side of the pond, and David goes around the left side of the pond. Okay? So, what they tell the kids is this is the following story. One morning, Bob rides around the right side of the pond, but unbeknownst to Bob, a tree has fallen, smacking itself into the center of the path 
and Bob collides with the branch. He falls off the bike. He hurts himself and is late to school. The left side of the path was fine. Now, that same morning, David, who gets up, I guess, a little bit later, David, who always takes the left side of the pond, he says, you know what? Today, I'm going to take the right side of the pond. David also hits the branch. He gets thrown off his bike. He's injured too, and he is late for school. And so the question that these researchers asked these young children is, who would be more upset about riding along the path that went around the right side of the pond? Bob, who does it every day, David, who just did it that one day, or would they feel the same? So five-year-olds said, ah, they'd be the same. They'd be totally bummed out because they hit a branch and fell off their bike and were late to school. But seven-year-olds realized that it was actually David who would be more upset because he deviated from his ordinary path. Hmm. He'd be more likely to feel regret in this case. Exactly. David would feel more regret because a seven-year-old is saying, if only David had taken the left side of the pond he would have avoided that branch and gotten to school safely and on time. You know, five-year-olds and seven-year-olds are only two years apart, but a lot goes on in that time for these young brains to acquire the strength and the muscularity to perform this kind of mental trapeze act that we're talking about, where you're swinging back and forth between past and present, between reality and imagination. That's a very hard act to perform. Mm-hmm. And You need the muscle memory, you need the strength, you need the dexterity, and that happens somewhere probably between the ages of five and seven. Yeah, man, it's so funny. I'm literally in this moment, I'm feeling starstruck by our own minds. (laughs) So pardon me while I just have a moment. It's incredible, though. I'm such a nerd. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. It's actually just astonishing. It's amazing what our minds can do. I mean, it it should, honestly, Maya, it should take our breath away. Mm -hmm. That is, when I was reading the neuroscience and the cognitive science, it's like, wow, our brains are awesome. They're they're a little glitchy in certain circumstances, but it's a pretty good piece of equipment. You know, (laughs) I'm not returning it to the factory. (laughs) I've said, uh, I've said before, I feel like we as humans are so hard on ourselves, but actually we should just feel like we're crushing it every moment of our existence just by virtue of existing and doing like 99% of the things we do on any given day. So, you know, who needs celebrity sightings, Dan, when you've got the human brain? That's what I say. You can get Absolutely. equally just, starstruck. Just, just pull up your, just pull up your, uh, your MRI and you'll, <laughs> and you'll see uh, that's, that's your celebrity sighting for the day. That's exactly right. Um, Okay, so to summarize the Bob and David study, we see that five-year-olds are able to identify, of course, that Bob and David are both experiencing negative emotions, right? They're probably feeling sad. They might be a little concerned about the bruises they have. Then there's this huge developmental milestone where for the first time we seem to understand intuitively that David would feel more of this thing called regret than Bob would. And and so with that in mind... um, you know, there's lots of negative emotions we feel. And one of the things you do in your book is you differentiate regret from some of these other negative emotions. I'm curious to hear what you see as the necessary ingredients for feeling regret as opposed to another kind of negative emotion. What makes regret different are two things. It's comparison and it is blame, essentially. So with regret, we compare one set of circumstances to another set of circumstances. So regret doesn't exist in 
absolute terms. It exists in comparative terms. And so we're, we're comparing one set of circumstances and set of facts to another imagined set of facts. Mm. Perhaps even more important is, is blame. Regret is your fault, right? And that mm-hmm. makes it different from other kinds of emotions. It makes it different from, say, the emotion of disappointment. I could feel disappointed that it's raining today, but I can't feel regret that it's raining mm-hmm. because I don't control the skies. I can feel regret if I leave the house without an umbrella and I know that it's raining because yep. um, that's on me. But regret and disappointment, the big demarcation is agency. Regret is your fault. And for those listening who are as self-critical as I am, this is also why regret stings so much, right? Because of this agency component, it just makes it such a painful feeling. Right, because you can't pin it on somebody else. Um, Okay, so now that we have a better handle on what regret is and the conditions that must be satisfied in order for us to feel regret, let's talk for a bit about how common it is for us to experience regret. Oh, absolutely. So there's research in social psychology from, from years ago showing that in people's everyday conversations, the negative emotion that people express the most in everyday conversations is regret. It was in this particular piece of research, the second most common emotion of any kind that they expressed after even after love. Um, And one of the exciting things about this project was I was able to do some research of my own Mm. and I was able to conduct a very large quantitative survey, the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. And I asked people a bunch of questions, including the question, how often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? Now, I, I agonized over the wording of that question because I wanted to describe regret. <laughs> Without saying it, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't want to use the R word <laughs> because there's such a stigma attached to the R word. And what we found is that 82% of the U.S. population did this thing at least occasionally. We have this performed idea that I have no regrets. I always look forward. I never look backward. But the, the percentage of people who said they never do this was one You know, in this culture, especially Western culture, where it's, you know, it's all about positive emotions, all about positive feelings, live with no regrets is this anthem that people are just screaming from the rooftops. One thing that really landed with me when reading your book is is you say, to live is to accumulate at least some regret. It is almost definitionally the case that if one has lived, (laughs) they will feel regret. And I think there's actually a calming element to that message. I agree. I'll see that point and raise you and say that if you're feeling regret, it's actually a good sign. It's like, oh, my cognitive machinery is working. Mm. I am experiencing regret. If you don't experience a regret, truly, it's a sign of a potentially grave problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, Dan, because when we engage in mental time travel and counterfactual thinking, we don't have to imagine how things could have gone better, right? We could instead imagine how things could have gone far worse. But what's interesting is that we as humans have a very strong bias towards the former, which helps explain why we so often regret things. Um, And you capture this point really nicely when you talk about framing a thought in terms of at least versus if only. Yes. So when we think about counterfactual thinking, there, there are two different varieties of it. One is an upward counterfactual. So you imagine how things could have been better Mm. if only I had become an accountant rather than an engineer. Everything in my life would be fantastic, right? So you imagine a better scenario. Um, Upward counterfactuals, if only, make us feel worse, but they can help us do better. 
But there's another kind of counterfactual, a downward counterfactual, where you imagine how things could have become worse. Mm. And so you say, oh, I shouldn't have married Edward, but at least I have these two great kids. Mm -hmm. You find the silver lining in that. What that does is that minimizes the sting. It makes you feel better, but it doesn't help you necessarily do better. And I think what's curious is that we're much more inclined to do the counterfactual thinking that makes us feel worse. Mm -hmm. Our brains are built for progress and efficiency, and they know that those upward counterfactuals, those if onlys, while they hurt, they're going to make us better if we do it right. There's a really interesting study around Olympians and their response to winning different types of medals that I think illustrates this, at least if only, kind of thinking very well. Do you mind sharing that study? This is a really, really interesting study of Olympic medalists. And what they did is they showed a group of participants photographs of medalists on the Olympic platform, the gold medal winner, the silver medal winner, the bronze medal winner, except they blocked out the actual medals that these Olympians won. And they had these participants who didn't know what the researchers were studying evaluate how happy the people looked. And they ranked the Olympians based on how happy they were. And so as we would expect, the person who won the gold medal looked the happiest, which makes sense, right? But then there was a bit of a surprise. The person who was the next happiest looking was the bronze medalist. And the silver medalist often didn't look all that happy, which is weird, right? You just won a silver medal in the Olympics. You should be pumped too, and except they weren't. The bronze medalists were beaming. The bronze medalists in some cases were looking as happy as the gold medalists. And the way we explain this riddle is through counterfactual thinking. The bronze medalist is doing an at least a downward counterfactual. They're imagining how things could have been worse. The bronze medalist is saying, I want a bronze medal, which is great because at least I wasn't like that schmo who finished fourth who's going home with no hardware. But the silver medalist is saying, if only I had they're a swimmer, reach for the wall a little bit earlier. If only I had kicked a little harder, I would be wearing that gold medal instead of this crappy silver medal. Yeah. You know, naturally, regret gets a really bad rap, right? Because as you just described with that swimmer, it's just such an unpleasant feeling. But you make the case, Dan, and I think a very convincing case, that we should see regret as something we should embrace and learn from. And so what are some of the positive effects that you feel regret can have when we engage with it in the right way? Yeah. And the key is that we have to engage with it in the right way. I think too often we're kind of conditioned to ignore regrets. Oh, it's negative. Don't even think about it. Just move on. Look forward. Don't look back. Mm. That's a bad idea. But sometimes I think if we're not equipped to deal with it properly, we get captured by our regrets. We wallow in them. We ruminate on them. Yeah. What we should be doing is listening to our regrets, confronting them, using them as signals, as data, as information. And when we do that, there are many, many benefits. For instance, there's research in social psychology showing that it can help make us better negotiators. You do a negotiation, you think about what you regret in that negotiation, you often do better in the next one. It can help us become better problem solvers, better strategists. There's even evidence that it can actually help us deepen sense of meaning in our lives. And so when we treat this emotion properly, and this, that's a big if, 
uh, we can use it as an engine for moving forward. Yeah, regret's really serving as a catalyst here, right, for actually driving meaningful action. Sure. And I think and I think what's I think what's puzzling here is to, to people is that, you know, a, a solution in some cases is to invite this negative emotion, not to bat it away, not mm. to ignore it, but in some sense to invite it. And that seems a little counterintuitive because you're inviting something that feels bad. Mm. And the thing about regret is that regret can clarify what we value and instruct us on how to do better. And people like that, but it comes with discomfort. It comes with some amount of pain and people don't like that, but that's not the deal. It's a package deal. Yeah, it's a package, you got to have yeah. both. That's right. And, and arguably, I think that pain and discomfort is the source of the clarification and the instruction. Yeah. It's signaling to your brain that you've acted in a way that might conflict with, with values, exactly. for example. Yep. Um, there's also research you talk about in your book that when we engage with regret in a meaningful, constructive way, it can also increase our performance. Do you mind talking about some of the studies in this area? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of research in experimental psychology where you give people puzzles, especially anagrams. Uh, and, and what it shows in general is that you put people into a problem-solving situation. They solve the problem. And then you ask them to reflect on what they regret doing or not doing in that problem-solving exercise. Again, you're inviting this negative emotion. They often do better in the next round because they felt bad. That bad feeling is a signal to the brain saying, huh, Maybe I should do things differently. It's a form of instruction. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you think about those puzzle solvers, if, if they actually subscribe to the no regrets philosophy, they said, oh, I screwed up this anagram. I did it slowly. I didn't get the right answer, but no regrets. I'm always positive. I never look backward. They're not going to get any better at performance on a whole array of problem solving skills. And how can regret deepen our sense of meaning? Well, I mean, I, what it does in many cases is that when we think about counterfactually, we, at some level, we sometimes will appreciate what we have, which deepens our sense of meaning, but it can also help clarify what we actually value in our lives. So there's one person I wrote about who uh, regretted not spending time with her grandparents. Every winter, the grandparents would come and visit her, and she hated it as a kid. She thought they were intruding. She didn't want to talk to them. She was standoffish. And when her grandparents passed away, she regretted it because she missed hearing their stories and hearing what their lives were about. Mm. And it actually prompted her to collect her own parents' stories because that feeling of regret spurred at least a quest for meaning and understanding of her own life and her own story. I want to dig in a bit to this notion of doing regret right, because I think this is so important. We want to make sure that we are not ignoring the negative feeling, not ignoring the regret. We also want to make sure that we're not marinating in it. We're not ruminating in this unproductive way. But it, just as importantly, we need to draw the right conclusion <laughs> from the regret. And we shouldn't code a regret as something that reflects this deep underlying flaw in our character, in our personality. Instead, we should evaluate that behavior in isolation, right? It's just a reflection of a behavior in a particular moment of time. Um, and we shouldn't overgeneralize, which we as humans so often do, especially, again, hypercritical people. Um, oh, my God, this must mean that I am a bad person. This must mean that I'm a terrible decision maker uh, or what have you. That is one of the secrets to process and regret effectively. But I also think it's one of the secrets to 
leading a life where you're not torturing yourself. Yeah. Uh, we say that if I made a mistake, I'm a bad person rather than I did a stupid thing. And you're always better off evaluating the behavior rather than making some kind of broader assessment of the person. Mm. So there's a temporal aspect of it as well. You have to understand that any mistake that you make, any screw up, any regret, any blunder is a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. We're willing to make universal attributions about our entire lives based on a moment, always a negative moment, um, and essentially neglect the other 99.999% of our lives in our evaluation. Don't do that. That's a recipe yeah. for that's a recipe for unhappiness. And you know, when you explain this to people, they get it. And if you coach them, they can stop doing that. The problem is is that I think it's a bigger problem is that I don't think we've done a very good job equipping people with how to deal with negative emotions. I think at some level we've sold them a bill of goods about the need to be positive all the time. Hmm. And what we should be doing is saying, yeah, have lots of positive emotions. Positive emotions are great. They make life fantastic, but you're going to have some negative emotions. And these negative emotions are adaptive. They're functional yeah. if you know how to treat them. When we're back from the break, Dan teaches us how we should treat our regrets and why regrets about long lost romances and missed job opportunities are far more similar than we might think. And I come in with some hot takes about whether we're maybe putting too much weight on our deathbed regrets. We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further 
at slash now. As Dan Pink was researching regret, he first wanted to learn what people tend to regret. So he launched the World Regret Survey and collected tens of thousands of regrets from people all over the world. Researchers have previously sorted regret into specific life categories, like romance regrets or education regrets. But when Dan analyzed the results of his survey, he realized these categories weren't telling the full story. What I found is that when you listen to what people are saying, what matters is not the domain of life. It's something else going on just beneath the surface. And the easiest way to make that clear is with an example. I was shocked by how many people who went to college, especially in America, regret not studying abroad. Hmm. It blew my mind. And the reason they didn't study abroad is that, oh, I don't know. It's kind of risky. I'm not sure I want to do that. And I was surprised by how salient that regret was. And then there were lots of people all over the world who had a regret that basically went like this. Uh, X years ago, there was someone who I really liked. I wanted to ask them out on a date, but I was too chicken to do that. And I've regretted it ever since. Okay, that's a romance regret. So we got an education regret. We got a romance regret. Then I have lots of people all over the place who say, oh, I always wanted to start a business rather than staying in this dead end job, but I didn't have the guts to do that. And now I regret it. That's a career regret. But to my mind, those are all the same regret. They're in different domains of life, but they, they share a common root. And at the common root is this. You're at a juncture in your life. You can play it safe or you can take the chance. And most people regret not taking the chance. Not all the time. There are mm-hmm. people who, who, take the, who took the chance and regret it because things went south on them. But for every one of those, there are dozens and dozens and dozens who have the opposite regret. So that's one of the four core regrets. Boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. And let's dig into boldness a bit, because this one's really interesting. You talk about the fact that when we're in our 20s, right, what we would call inaction regrets, so things that we didn't do, and action regrets, regretting things we did do, are roughly the same in number. But by the time we hit 50, inaction regrets are twice as likely to be felt than before. And help me understand why it is that as we age, we increase the ratio of the things we regret not having done than the things we have done? I think that's an interesting question. I'm not sure we know the full answer to that, but I think that we can speculate. Certain kinds of action regrets, we can find the silver lining in. We can do it at least. We can say, oh, I shouldn't have moved to uh, Houston, but at least there isn't a state income tax. Okay. So you, so you can find the silver lining in that. The other thing is that certain kinds of action regrets we can undo. Um, if we bullied somebody, maybe we can make amends and make an apology. If we've stolen from somebody, maybe we can make restitution. I have one guy who I wrote about who got a tattoo that said no regrets, decided that he didn't like it, and decided to have his tattoo removed. Um, <laughs> and so we can remove our tattoo. So with action regrets, we can we can make peace with them at some level. We can at least them, we can undo them. Inaction regrets, you can't do that. Mm. Uh, You typically can't find an at least, and there's nothing to undo because you haven't done anything. So I think that's a big part of it. You know, in the the research on aging, like Laura Carstensen's work, for example, she finds that as we get older, we tend to have fewer anxieties because there's just less future to be anxious about. And I do wonder if there's a parallel here, which is as we get older... You know, the 
the range of opportunity that lies ahead for us that we could potentially explore diminishes pretty considerably. And so that might make us lust after past moments when we actually did have opportunity but didn't take advantage of it. I think that's very plausible. I think that we do have a sense that many of us, not all of us, have a sense that when we're young, there are boundless opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, relatively early in our lives, we get a bracing reality check. Um, Okay, so we've talked about boldness regrets. Do you mind talking about the three other categories? Sure. So one category is what I call foundation regrets. Uh, These are regrets that people have where they made small decisions or small mistakes early in life, no single one of which is consequential, but that accumulate into nasty consequences. So a very common one would be, I spent too much and saved too little, and now I'm broke. Now I have no money. And the same thing was true with health. You know, I, I didn't exercise, I didn't eat right. And I, it's not like for one day, I did that for years, and now I am in ill health or woefully out of shape. So foundation regrets are, if only I'd done the work. Moral regrets are... If only I'd done the right thing. So you're at a juncture in your life. You can take the high road. You can take the low road. And when people take the low road, not everybody, but most everybody regrets it uh, because I think most of us are good and want to be good. And in that category, we had a lot of regrets about marital infidelity, hmm. a lot of regrets, a huge number of regrets about bullying. I couldn't believe how many regrets we had about bullying. Morality ends up being a little bit more complicated um, because people have different moral taste buds. Um, And then finally, our connection regrets. These are regrets about relationships and not only romantic relationships, but all the relationships in our lives. And and what often happens is that these relationships that were intact come apart. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that many of these relationships come apart in very uncinematic ways. They just drift apart. And what happens is that one person wants to reach out They say, oh, man, I was such good friends with Maya 10 years ago. I really should reach out and say hi to her. And then we say, oh, man, no, no, no. It's been 10 years. That's going to be so awkward. And besides, they don't want to hear from me. (laughs) And besides, Maya doesn't want to hear from me. She doesn't care. And then we wait another few years. And then it's like, okay, now it's 13 years. Oh, man, it's even more awkward (laughs) to reach out. That ends up being a colossal mistake on both fronts Mm. because it's, it's when we do reach out, it's way less awkward than we think. And the other side almost always cares. I like that there's a signaling here, which is, you know, these categories that you've talked about, because we tend to regret them, what that teaches us is that those are the things we care most about in life. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that for me, a personal puzzle I was trying to resolve was, um, you know, reading through all these regrets every day here in my office. Why was I not more bummed out? I got these people opening up their hearts and, and telling me the mistakes that they made and how terrible they feel about it. Why did that not bring me down? And and I finally, over time, realized it, it, that when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. Mm. So it is, as you say, this very powerful signal. If you think about all the decisions that any of us made today or yesterday or this week or last week, I don't remember half of I don't remember most of them. Mm. Um, but if you remember a decision or an indecision from a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, and it bugs you still. You got to pay attention to that, man. Mm-hmm. That's a very strong signal. That is a that is an air horn screaming in your psyche telling you, pay attention to me. It's telling me something. And it's what it's telling us is this is a signal about what you value. And it's a signal about how to do better in the future. So let's see, Dan, um, I'm listening to this episode and I'm thinking to myself, OK, 
Dan's convinced me I need to engage with my regret more proactively and also in this productive way. What are some strategies that you could give me, the listener, for taking a regret and actually turning it into something productive? When you have a regret, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that your regrets are part of the human condition. That's a big part of it, too. We, we, we have this kind of pluralistic ignorance where we think, oh, my God, I'm the only person who regrets bullying. I'm the only person who regrets um, uh, being too timid in my choices. Mm. When, in fact, I got a database of nearly 22,000 people with your exact same regret. Another thing that we should do, I think there's a very strong argument to make for disclosing our regrets, even if it's only in private writing. I actually think the power of disclosure, even if we don't disclose it publicly, is is a conversion process, is, a, is in some ways a transmutation process, because mm-hmm. emotions by their nature are blobby. They're, they're abstractions. And that's what makes positive emotions feel good. But it's also what makes negative emotions feel bad. And when mm-hmm. we write about our negative emotions, talk about our negative emotions, we convert these abstractions into concrete words. And those are just less menacing and they can begin the sense-making process. And then we move forward. It's very important to draw a lesson, to extract a lesson from our screw-ups, from our regrets. The challenge is that we're terrible at solving our own problems. Mm. Uh, We're too caught up in the details. Uh, And I actually like the technique of using our crazily amazing brain's ability for time travel is essentially having a consultation with the you of 10 years from now and asking the you of 10 years from now what you should do. Because I think we can make a pretty safe bet what the you of 10 years from now is going to care about. I want to... Okay, so... I think I have a broader question just generally about regret, which is why it is we put so much weight on regrets that we may feel later in life. So there's this Hmm. proverbial deathbed regret, and people often say, well, you know, Dan, when you're on your deathbed, are you really going to regret A? Aren't you going to regret B instead? And that calculus can really influence our present-day decisions. And I want to challenge this thinking a bit because it seems to be grounded in the idea that the values we express at the end of our lives somehow represent a truer or more accurate expression of either what we care about or what we ought to care about, right? It's prescriptive. And this way of thinking implies that there is just one constant true set of things that we ought to care about. And and another way to think about it, a different framing, is that we are people whose values naturally change and evolve over time. And if you take that view, then there's no obvious reason why we should privilege the values of future Maya over present-day Maya. Absolutely. And and so so this is one reason why, and there's a, there's a reason that I say 10 years and not deathbed. I am very skeptical of deathbed um, uh, regrets. I'm skeptical of the accuracy of the reporting of them mm-hmm. because it's purely anecdotal. The numbers are not very vast. And also, I don't think that what we're thinking in a moment of fog when we're about to perish from the earth is necessarily the clearest and highest expression of what we value, exactly as you say. Well, look, I'm already super happy if we're just constraining the time frame with which we view the future. So I'm on board with the like <laughs> 10 years from now, Maya. The sure. deathbed stuff just drives me nuts because like you said, in our final moments, there's a lot of factors that are weighing into what we say we regret, what we think we should be saying about what we regret in order to maybe pacify people who live on planet Earth. I don't know. There's just lots of that's things. A, that's a very good point. That's one that I hadn't thought about is that there could be a kind of performative side of it. There could be a kind of 
oh my God, like I got to get, you know, I got to get my last argument in here before the final decider decides whether I go up or down. I have got to apologize or make right with so-and-so. Right, Um, right. But I I, I just think it's important in general, as much as we can value regret, to remember it is also just a feeling. Regret is a feeling that can be transient and can pass. And it's not always something we... I say this only, Dan, because regret often gets this trump card. It's like we're making a decision. We're trying to weigh costs and benefits. I don't really want a kid right now, but I think I might regret not having a kid later. And the minute our society hears the word regret, it's like, oh, my God, then go do the thing. Right. And so I just want to make sure we're not elevating it to too important a category, because like a lot of other negative emotions, it is just a feeling. I think that's a fair point. And the the other thing empirically is that there's a decent amount of evidence showing that if we over index on our anticipated regret, we end up making suboptimal decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can end up making decisions that actually are a little bit more risk averse because as Dan Gilbert says, we end up buying emotional insurance we don't need. Uh, (laughs) And so so anticipating regret is not a perfect decision-making tool. This is why I think there's some nuance in it. I think one should uh, anticipate what I think most people will regret in the future, mm-hmm. but actually chill out on most stuff um, and also recognize that some regrets are ephemeral. Hmm. Um, I'd love to end on a personal note, Dan. I'm wondering, you know, you've been in the world of regret for, I imagine, several years now, right? Researching yes. for this book, writing this book. What is something that you had long regretted or you do still regret, but that you now see through a different lens? Um, I, I I felt pretty bad about certain regrets that I had with regard to kindness. Hmm. And I never talked about them, but I had them. They, I harbor these regrets about kindness. Now, it's a moral regret, although it's a peculiar kind of moral regret because my moral regrets about kindness were regrets of inaction, not action. Hmm. So they're not regrets about bullying people, but they're regrets about being in situations where people were not being treated well, where people were being left out or being made fun of or being excluded. And I didn't participate in that, but I saw it and I knew it was wrong Mm. and I didn't do anything. And I have to say that has bugged me so much for so long to the point where I kind of sublimated it. I I said, okay, I don't want to deal with this. And one of the things about reading through all these regrets is that I started seeing that regret among other people. And I've started, and in a weird way that made me feel better. It's like, oh my God, I'm not the only person who did this. And the other thing that it did is that if you listen to that, okay, so this is a good example of how you process regret. So I could, I could feel that that kindness regret, and I could say, no regrets. It's in the past. I'm going to look forward. I don't want to be negative. That's a bad idea. Mm. I could also say, oh my god, earlier in my life I wasn't as kind as I could be. I am just a wretched, awful, worthless individual. I am just the worst. That's a bad idea too. What I could what I could do instead is like, wow, 25 years later, this is bugging me. This is something I need to pay attention to. And what it's teaching me is it's clarifying what I value in ways that I didn't realize. I guess I value kindness more than I expected. And it's instructing me on how to do better. Mm. So that when, you know, I try as much as I can when people are being excluded in ways small or large, to say something, to do something, to pull people in. I'm not saying I'm perfect in doing that. But that spear of regret is prompting me to do better in the future because I don't want to feel that feeling again. And that feeling is telling me what I value and I need to pay attention to that. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening. Please join me next week for an episode that is really close to my heart. My guest, Christy Warren, is actually a Slight Change of Plans listener, and she reached out to me about her experiences working as a paramedic and firefighter for more than two decades. As a first responder, Christy made rescuing people her life's work, but she eventually had to learn to save herself when the psychological impact of the job became too much. Every time I got off work, I'd start crying on the way home. So this day I said, I'm not going to cry. Like, I'm going to make it home and I'm not going to cry. And then I was going to go meet somebody to play tennis. And I got in my car to drive to the tennis courts. And the whole world came just tumbling down on me. Everything just blew open and blew apart. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't I can't go back to work. I, I just can't. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes our showrunner, Tyler Green, our story editor, Kate Parkinson Morgan, our sound engineer, Andrew Bastola, and our associate producer, Sarah McRae. Luis Guerra wrote our delightful theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. See you next week. What they did is they told kids a story about two boys who lived near each other in the same neighborhood and each day rode their bikes to work. So one kid's name was Bob. Oh, sorry. One think, kid is it to work or school? Because they're little kids, right? Okay. I just want to, these are some very advanced kids you've got. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. They're 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 child actors. And so this is a this is taking place in Hollywood, and they're going to quickly descend into drug addiction and despair. But First, they're going to ride their bike. Okay. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.